You can have a seat. Amen. Well, I am so uh, grateful for your willingness to come, and uh, um, I really appreciate your being here. And uh, I know the masks are a pain. I totally get it, and I'm really hopeful, in fact, to the point of prayer, <laughs> that uh, they will become recommended rather than required soon. And uh, so, because uh, that'll mean I'm not wearing one. But anyway... Uh, so thanks for being here. Thanks for making this commitment. I think it's really valuable. I, I keep thinking back to uh, the first Sunday we opened services uh, again. Uh, we were away, and uh, so I, I didn't get to come and meet with you. But I remember the next Sunday when I came back, I could hardly sing. It was a very moving thing for me to be back with my brothers and sisters again, singing, hearing people around me sing. And uh, so uh, I love that we can do this, and we're looking forward to the day when we can just open lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, if you know people with kids, let them know we're, we're open for business with kids up through age five. It was in the announcement loop, but uh, uh, they can get online. We prefer that they pre-register. We're doing everything we can to make sure nobody has to touch anything. Uh, and uh, so we're hoping they'll pre-register so we can just hand them a tag, or actually they can just come pick up their tag, for that matter. And... Uh, but uh, we're, we're moving in the right direction, and uh, Lord willing, we'll get through this summertime, and by fall, we won't even remember this has been this way, but we'll see. Anyway, find your way to Ephesians chapter 4. We have uh, hit the midway point in this really significant book. Uh, don't you love uh, how the sovereignty of God plays out even in choices that are made many months previous. Pastor Sean uh, asks commonly among the teaching team of pastors at Coastal, what do you feel like the body needs? What do you think would be valuable? And, and ultimately, he just usually gets some time away in the, in the wintertime and again in the uh, summertime and just kind of maps out, here's what we're preaching. And he hands us a text and says, go to it and do what God lays on your heart with that text as a general rule. And, uh, and in the providence of God, uh, he led Pastor Sean to choose Ephesians for this time in life and for this season in our country's history, which has so much about it that talks about us being reconciled, the reconciliation that is ours as believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, the ramifications of that are extensive, and uh, so I'm really happy for it. And we move now to, uh, if, if we can call it that, to the application piece, all right? It's not uncommon in Paul's letters for him to have uh, the early part of the book be really pretty heavy-duty doctrinal. It's talking about uh, things that we need to understand that are foundational to us. And then he tends to get to the last half of the book. And I'd like to think he has patterned it after my thoughts to take home, but probably not. Uh, he, he tends to say, okay, now here's what you know. Here's what we're going to do with what we know. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about that in these very first things. But I want to go back and just do a super quick review, okay? Because the first word in verse 1 of chapter 4 is not actually I. It's therefore, but to make a little more sense, they put the I first. But therefore, so back to our principles of Bible study, when we see therefore, we're supposed to find out what? what it's there for. It is there for the first three chapters of the book, specifically the last little bit. So 
Here are things he has talked about so far in his theological portion of the book. Chapter 1, verse 3, God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him, when you heard the truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who's the guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 19 of chapter 1, we, he is praying that we'll understand what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near, and he has created, verse 17, he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Verse 18, through him we both have access to the Father in one spirit. Chapter 3 and verse 6, the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise. Verse 16, he prays that we might be strengthened with power through the Spirit of God in our, in our inner being. Verse 18, he prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. That's about 14 things just in a quick reading. Therefore, with all of that in mind, he says, verse 1, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So now he's going to move from profession to practice. So he starts by simply saying, I want you to be what you are. He has spent what we have recorded as three chapters describing what Christ has done, who we are in Christ. All of these things are already true. One of the most powerful things that we can learn to to focus on is among other things, and we're going to talk about it again today, it's really, it's on the heart of all your pastors, I can tell you this, with all that's going on in our culture, in Christ, we are already reconciled. In Christ, we are unified. That's the reality. What we need to do is learn how to live in the reality that's already ours in Christ. It's part of the process of Christian growth to learn to live that way. Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, or literally in the Lord. I, I wondered for a few minutes, why does he even have to add that? What, what benefit is there in that? So I just... That he said it makes me think he had a reason, or the Holy Spirit had a reason as he inspired the scriptures through Paul. This is, this is one of several letters in the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon, that were written while Paul was in custody. He's a prisoner, literally a prisoner. Not just, he's not just saying, 
uh, God has captured me and now I have to serve him, though that's certainly the truth and the way he expresses it in many places, but he's actually literally a prisoner. He's in custody. He's not free to be out and travel around and plant more churches. He's not free to do the stuff that we know the Apostle Paul for, but he is free to write letters to churches that he's been part of, and so we are the beneficiaries of that He didn't see himself just as a prisoner of Rome, though. He's a prisoner in the Lord. And here's what I think he's he's focusing on as he does this. I think Paul saw his imprisonment as God's will. I think Paul looked at his imprisonment as God's assignment for him. Right now, this is where God wants me. Boy, that'll preach, right? That that would be a lot of, uh, well, I would say fun, but it wouldn't be fun because as you and I look back at the seasons of our life, there were seasons we'd skip, right? If we had the option to do that again, we'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll pass. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll sit that one out. I'd like a bye week or a bye year, <laughs> uh, whatever it is. I think Paul viewed his imprisonment not as something that was a hindrance, and this is true in so many ways, but he viewed it as God's assignment for him. This is where God wants me because this is how God wants to use me right now. It, it sanctifies the hard times for me. It sanctifies the wilderness experiences for me because there are things that I will not only learn while I'm there, but there are things that I will be able to do to serve God there in that season that I wouldn't if I were anywhere else. That's kind of a side note, Paul the prisoner. But here's what his challenge is. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Conduct yourself. Live your life this way. Here's the deal. We don't... The challenge here is not to say you need to live in a way that people will say, oh... He's, he was really worth God saving. Ooh, look at that. The, the root word here has to do with balancing the scales. And I think it simply means take all the truth we learned in the first three chapters and live a life that balances your profession and your practice. Some of us are really good at the profession part. Some of us learn and know this book really, really well. Some of us, because we've spent a lot of time there, have not spent quite so much time on how does this work itself out in day-to-day life? How do I use this practically? Others are really, really strong in, man, I want to just practice my Christianity. I want to live it out. I want to do all this stuff. But they don't want to spend much time studying the Scriptures and going deep and learning what God wants them to know Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You've been called to be followers of Jesus Christ. I want your practice and your profession to balance each other. I want you to to conduct yourself in a way that says, here's what he says he knows, here's how he lives, and it backs it up. I have a a very dear friend who is not a follower of Christ, who uh, we've talked numerous times about spiritual things. In fact, if I see him this week, he'll say, what was the sermon about, preacher? And uh, so I'll tell him. I love it when the sermon is like directly evangelistic because then I can just share the gospel again. But <laughs> um, 
anyway, he, uh, we got talking one time about church attendance, and he doesn't go anywhere, and, and uh, he's like many people, but there is one particular church in Hampton Roads. I think that's general enough. You'll have no idea uh, what it is, but uh, his frustration was he knew a few people that were part of that church, and he said, I know they go to church on Sunday, but he said, I work with them all week long, and they're no different from me. I, I know that's an excuse. I get it. It's, it's an excuse that people use. Oh, there's hypocrites in the church. I mean, my answer is usually, well, good, come join us, because you will be too. We all, we all say more than we do, right? And we acknowledge that. That's why we're here. This isn't a, this isn't a museum for you know, really impressive saints to show up. This is a, like a spiritual hospital, right? We come because we know we need help. And uh, so we're here to help each other. But uh, nevertheless... It does speak to uh, a tendency we have to say a lot more than we do. Uh, A story is told, uh, I read it years ago, and it kind of stuck with me. Alexander the Great had a a soldier in the ranks one time who was just totally out of line, and uh, it didn't seem that any any regard for uh, punishment he received, and so he called him directly to him one day, and turns out the guy's name was Alexander. He said, oh, this is going to be really easy. He said, you either change your conduct or change your name, one of the two. Uh, there have been some times, and it'll probably happen because the older you get, the freer you feel to say whatever you're thinking. <laughs> uh, one of these days, somebody's going to come to me who is not living in a manner that's consistent with the claims of the gospel in their life, and I'm going to tell them, listen, either Get your heart in line, get your life in line with what the, you say the scriptures have taught you, or quit calling yourself a Christian. Because it is really important to the people who watch us that we live like what we say we are. One of the distressing things to me, as, as I said, it's... It's on our minds because it's in the news, but it's on my mind, and I think it's important that it be on our minds as pastors, about the whole, uh, the whole issue of, of racial relations. It's, it is so important to me that we not just say, well, I'm not a racist. How are we engaging this conversation? I think it's really important that we do that. I think it's really important that we that we, not, not in, it's so hard, right? Because uh, I don't want to lay the onus of responsibility on somebody else to say, okay, well, what am I supposed to do and say? I want to I be engaged in relationship, which, by the way, the rest of this book is about that. Today is setting us up for the character issues that will affect our relationships. Most of the rest of Ephesians talks about relational stuff. Let me, let me move on. This, we're not talking legalism here, so I just want to be clear. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling just means live like you say you are. Be what you already are. Become what you uh, are in the sight of God through Christ. So it's just a recognition that as children of God by faith in Christ, our life is demonstrated, our faith is demonstrated by how we live. And People ought to see a distinction, not always in the specific behaviors, not in I'm checking off all the right boxes, 
but it really has to do with character. And I'm glad that, and I think that's why he addresses that first. Verses two and three just demonstrate to us character is the proof. Let me read it. Uh, I'll, I'll start at the beginning of the sentence. I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are all character things, right? Those are all things that describe who we are. The first is, I think, a pair, humility and gentleness. Humility's really, really hard. Uh, it, it's one of those things, once I think I have it, I just lost it, right? It's really hard. Oh, well, I'm humble. Uh, it, that doesn't, it doesn't play off very well. Humility, I, I read this definition in the last few weeks, and I really like it. Humility is me having an unretouched view of myself. I like that. I like that description because I like the Facebook view of me. I like what people see when they look at my profile. I like that they see all the good things that I post. I, I like that I post the positive stuff or something that's happened that's really nice or, of course, pictures of my grandson or whatever. <laughs> and I like, I like that people can see all of those things. I'm really glad there's not like a, a Facebook that I don't have control over where they get to see all the other stuff and all the, the stuff that I said that I shouldn't have or to my family or whatever it is. Because... I don't want people to think ill of me. Humility is me, not everybody else. It's me having an unretouched view of who I am. It's recognizing that I'm not near as important as I'd like to think. It's one of those things. Can we please stop trying to have important conversations on Facebook? I know that's not directly related, but I tell you, I think it's related from this vantage point. We try to have important things on Facebook, important conversations, and we, we you know, post this meme or this statement or this thing that we read, and man, I, I don't know if we think we're like going to solve it. Man, I posted that. Boom, mic drop, whatever. I mean, what do we have, like 30 people who regularly see our stuff? I mean, even if you have hundreds of friends, they don't all see your stuff, right? So, I mean, I'm like... Mm, got them. All 30 of them have read that now. Why don't we just call somebody and talk to them instead of posting? Anyway, humility is keeping my focus off of myself. It is not thinking less of myself. In fact, sometimes when I talk as though I'm less than I am in terms of skills or abilities or things like that. I'm actually being dishonest, right? I mean, if Pastor Sean were, for example, to say, you know, I'm really not a very good preacher, that, that wouldn't be humility. That would be dishonesty. He's a really good preacher. Now, he doesn't have to go around and shout that from the mountaintops. Everybody else says that about him. But he, so he doesn't have to do that. But humility is not just thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's spending less time thinking about me, focusing on me. It's counting others as more significant than myself. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 uses that very phrase. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Can you imagine, and he's going to, to touch on it, can you imagine what kind of difference that would make in our relationships? Imagine what that would be like at work if employers, imagine this, would consider their employees as more significant than themselves. Or if employees would say, you know what? My employer really is more significant than me. The verse doesn't say, figure out who's most significant and be honest about that. It says, in your mind, consider someone else to be more significant than you. It doesn't matter who actually is because, I mean... We're just all people, right? We're all frail, we're all sinners, so if one of us is more significant than the other, that doesn't say a lot. Let's compare ourselves to the right standard if we're going to talk about significance, but I can treat people in a way that they are more significant than me. Imagine what difference that makes. I talked about this when we did our marriage seminar back in the, over the winter time. Uh, imagine what a difference in marriage relationships if every husband would get up in the morning and the first thoughts in his mind were, i got to figure out how to treat my wife today as though she was more significant than me. Or if every wife did the same thing. I'm going to treat my husband today as though he's more significant than I am. That's humility. And gentleness... Is, is just being mild in my spirit. It's, it isn't a, a, the idea of weakness. Some call this word meekness. It's not about being weak. There, everything is, I mean, I, I am who I am, so if I have some strength of character, that's great. But gentleness takes that strength and puts it under control. It's actually a, a word used in some cases of a, of a horse that's been broken by a trainer. The horse can still run like the wind. The horse is still strong. The horse can still take that trainer out if they wanted to, but the horse's strength and speed are now all under the control of their trainer, of their master. So gentleness is not a lack of strength. It's strength that's under the control of God. Moses is described in Numbers 12 as the meekest man on the earth. And he made a lot of excuses, but when he finally was convinced, okay, I need to do this, he went to Pharaoh, took on the, the king of Egypt, the ruling monarch of the known world at the time, and said, you need to let God's people go. And then he led millions, two million people perhaps, out of Egypt and led this whole crowd, but yet he was the meekest man on the earth. And Jesus, who's the only one who would be allowed to say this without it being pride, said, I am meek and lowly in heart, and I need you to learn from me. Nobody ever accused Jesus of weakness or softness, yet he was gentle. Patience. We're to be humble and gentle. We are to be patient. This has to do, for the most part, with circumstances, enduring circumstances, and not giving in. You know, sometimes I I wonder why guys did what they did or people did what they did in, in the Scriptures, but Jeremiah is one that really strikes me because the first part of Jeremiah, in the first chapter, he relates how God called him. 
And he basically said, listen, Jeremiah, nobody's going to believe your message. They're going to hate you. They're going to malign you. They're going to persecute you. But I'm calling you, and you need to be a prophet for me. And so for years prior to the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah prophesied to the people of Israel, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your sins. Disaster is coming. And then Jeremiah was taken into captivity with the people of Israel taken away into captivity, and that's where we get the book of Lamentations from, while he sits in captivity, lamenting what has happened because nobody listened to him. He was patient. He spent his entire life. And of course, the difficulty is how do we get that, right? How do we get patience? James Boyce tells the story of a guy who went to his preacher and said, listen, I am really struggling with this patience thing. Would you pray for me? And so the guy said, sure, let's pray right now. And said, Lord, please send great tribulation into my brother's life. (laughs) Uh, Because Romans 5 says we rejoice, we glory in tribulations because tribulation works patience. We don't learn patience without it being tested. Forbearing, bearing with, one another, the rest of verse 2 says, in love. If, if patience is with circumstances, then this bearing, forbearance, is uh, with people. That's why we hear phrases like, it's hard to put up with this person, right? It's, it's difficult. It's, they, they really, it, it weighs on me. They, it's forbearance. It's, it's lasting long. It's to endure 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's why we forbear, we bear with one another in love. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Hatred has to point out everything that somebody says or does that's wrong. Love is willing not to do that all the time, to stir things up. And godly love is necessary because godly love is honest. The covering of a multitude of sins that Peter talks about is not pretending they're not there, is not covering them up and hiding them. It just means I don't have to make a thing out of all of them. Because I recognize if I'm dealing with a brother or sister in Christ that it is genuinely covered, taken away. Love is more concerned with the welfare of the one being loved than the one doing the loving. Verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The peace, according to chapter 2, is the peace that Jesus purchased for us, right? So we have, we have this bond of peace that is already ours. We have become one in Christ. Now there is peace, and we are to be eager to maintain unity, or I call it zealous unity, We need to go after unity like it was something really, really worth going after. 
eager to do something is something you do with intense effort, with incredible motivation. And it is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're going to hit on that again here in just a in just a minute, but we are one. We are unified in Christ. It's really, really important that we acknowledge that. And whatever it is that we're fighting about, we are not promoting unity if we're debating about it and having a, a hurtful attitude and spirit. We don't maintain unity by fighting. We don't maintain unity by just avoiding conflict. I was just writing about this the other day when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are the pacifists or blessed are those who avoid conflict. He said, blessed are those who make peace. Not just keep quiet, not just keep things calm, but blessed are those who genuinely make peace. We need to be zealous for unity. We need to be zealous for reconciliation. That means we may have to have some difficult conversations. It may mean that we're going to have to have some difficult introspection about how we fit into issues that are prominent perhaps in our culture, but other issues as well. How am I demonstrating that I'm a person of unity? And why? Well, here, here, not why, but here are the ways that we express this. So we are to walk in a manner worthy we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here's, here's the why. These are the expressions of our unity, beginning in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The word one is in there seven times in this couple of verses. Seven times. Our unity is enabled by the Spirit of God one spirit, the one spirit. We are one body. Remember, we talked about the incredible uh, racial divide between Jew and Gentile, right? We talked about this in incredible distinction between those who were uh, ethnic Jews and everybody else, those who were not ethnic Jews. There was an incredible distinction and when they came together in Christ, they didn't become one or the other, right? We, we discussed that earlier in the book. Uh, Gentiles didn't become Jews, and Jews didn't now become Gentiles. They became one new man. Now we have the church. Now we had this, this body in which people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, don't you love what heaven is going to be like? I guess I shouldn't hesitate to just speak openly, but, you know, I really hate the phrase colorblind. Well, I'm colorblind. Well, what good does that do? Colorblind isn't valuable for anything. I don't want to be colorblind. I want to honor and love people who are different than me. 
Because heaven's going to be like that. We're not all going to be the same color when we get to heaven, right? We're not, we're not all going to be unified in how we appear. And we're not just going to be angels floating around in eternity, right? We're going to be people with actual bodies, but perfectly unified with each other. We are in one body because of one spirit, and we are focused on the one hope that we have, which is heaven. We look forward to the day when people around the throne of God from every tribe, nation, and tongue will with one voice glorify God. That's going to be incredible. I am totally convinced that it can be true today. It's why God has given us the church. It distresses me when I look at the history of the church and see how at various times and in various ways we have excluded people. If you've ever traveled a lot, you know the feeling, right? You, you know what it's like to be in a place where you're welcome to be there, but you really don't fit. You really don't belong. It bothers me still, and I, I don't know the solution, but it, it bothers me that one of the most segregated places in our country is Sunday morning at church. Now, I know it's not entirely true at Coastal. I get that. But churches in general, we, we, we're homogenous because we want to be pe with people who are like us. We are like each other because we're all in Christ, and we need to learn to love that we're different. We need to learn to love that we bring different backgrounds to this thing called the church. It should never be true that somebody would show up and feel a little awkward, like, how are they going to take it if I show up? One hope, we demonstrate the unity that is already ours, and it's enabled by the one Spirit of God. We have one Lord. We are identified with one Lord, the Lord Jesus. One of the things that I appreciate, one of the stories I appreciate, and we don't always talk about that often, is Jesus' baptism. And he brings up baptism here. I'll get to that in just a minute. But Jesus was baptized. What in the world for? We, we say people get baptized so we can publicly profess our faith. We, we've trusted in Christ. We were forgiven of our sins. We were buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. And so we're publicly confessing that we've trusted in Jesus. Well, then why in the world did Jesus get baptized? I think it was because there's more to baptism, and I think it's why he brings it up here, than just this, this public ritual that says, yep, I got saved. It's an identification. It's an identification with the body of Christ, and it's an identification with Jesus. And I'm convinced that when Jesus got baptized, it was to say, I'm identifying myself with these people who make up my body. One Lord. Now at Coastal, we unite around a general expression of the faith. It's pretty simple. It's not incredibly extensive. We don't ask that everybody agree on everything at Coastal, which would be crazy because we never would. But 
We, we keep the list of essentials pretty small. I think there are eight or nine of them. And we, we make sure that on the things that we cannot negotiate on, we don't negotiate on. But there are lots of things that there is room at the table because our riverbanks are a little bit wider than some. I think that's healthy. So we unite around certain common things. And I get that there are other churches that that think differently and have different theological vantage points than us. And so we, we would have difficulty cooperating together in a church family. And so we have a certain kind of basic uh, symbiosis, I guess. But it's, it is unity in one Lord. And he specifies baptism, one baptism. This is why I think baptism is important. It's why we still do it. It's why we roll out the tank and make people get wet in front of the group. Because there is something very significant when a person says, I am certainly have trusted in Christ and I was buried with Christ and I have been raised in newness of life. And that's a really important aspect of it. But it is also a public statement. I'm identifying myself with these people. We don't see it as much in America because everybody gets baptized. Some people get baptized before they even know they're being baptized. They're little tiny tykes. And, and uh, so we're not familiar with the cultural setting of a lot of countries where you can even say, yeah, I'm investigating the things of Christ. But when you get baptized, everybody knows you've identified with Jesus and the people who follow after him. And so there's this huge division so we don't get that, but it doesn't mean it's not true. It's still, and it's why we do it publicly. It's why, you know, I don't just raise my kids and lead them to Jesus and baptize them in the bathtub because they, they need that. They need the, the church family, the body needs to see people saying, I'm in. We're identifying ourselves with one Lord. And lastly, we're submitted to one God and Father of all who is over all, that speaks of his authority. He is through all, meaning he is working through all of us, and he is in all of us through, by means of the Spirit of God, he indwells us. So that we are now, in New Testament language, the, the temple of God who dwells in us. One God, one Father. Our unity is so thoroughgoing that we almost have to work at it. We've been trained not to be unified with each other. We, have to, we learn how that is over the course of time. But the reality is we are one. So I've just got two thoughts to give you to take home. One, do a little self-evaluation. Or maybe... Do some evaluation with other people who know you and love you. Not just people who know you. Now, be careful. <laughs> Make sure it's people who also love you, who will be honest with you and not hurtful when they point out the things that, you know, some of this you're not as good at as you think you are. And secondly, zealously pursue unity with other believers. It is really, really important. 
the day is coming, maybe a long time yet, maybe not, but the day is coming when the church will not just be set aside. I feel like people nowadays, the church is kind of, yeah, whatever. I think there is coming a day when if you're connected to a church and you are part of the people of God and you make that publicly known, that you will suffer for it. I think it's coming. I don't, I don't know whether that's going to be physical beatings or your business is going to suffer for it. Uh, I don't know how exactly it's going to look, but I think the time is coming when we're going to have to really decide, am I one with these people? Am I going to publicly be known as being part of this group or not? It's easy, it's easy to be what, what has become known as a cultural Christian. Uh, I think that's going to go away. I think genuine followers of Jesus Christ who have banded together for the sake of their own sanity to some degree, but so that they can spiritually strengthen and encourage and help each other, I think that's going to be more and more important, right? Man, I tell you, I am so grateful for the realities of the book of Ephesians. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest. I'm looking forward to thinking through again, how does this affect my, my marriage relationships, my relationships with those who are my superiors and who I serve, and, and how does it affect my relationship with my kids and my relationship with my coworkers. And there are lots of ways in which these things get kind of fleshed out in, okay, you need to be humble and gentle, patient, uh, long-suffering, and you need to really be eager to pursue unity. Those things are kind of foundational to what's to come. And man, I'm looking forward to how we're going to work it all out, right? All right, listen, let's pray, and we're going to quickly sing a little bit and uh, make our way out the front door and enjoy some fellowship out on this beautiful day. Father, I am really grateful. I, I just, it's amazing to me that uh, you would take people who are so different that come from so many different backgrounds and bring us together in one body. Only you could accomplish that, Father. And I pray that we would uh, leave this place today uh, reignited in our desire to make true in practice what we know is true in reality. So help us to be the kind of people who will be at the front lines eagerly pursuing unity, people who will act with humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. Uh, Lord, those things do not come naturally to me, and I pray that you would help me as I seek to pursue them and allow the gospel to transform me. So thanks, Father, for the opportunity to be here. We're grateful, and as we sing and leave this place, I pray that you'd be pleased with our hearts as we go. In Jesus